Good morning. We're reading from Judges chapter 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called the place Bochim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance, at Timnath in Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaish. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt, They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet... They would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies, as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning, under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. 
They refuse to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive them out before any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and to see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Some people say today that there's a crisis in leadership and it's not hard to see why people would say this. I mean, look at some of the most powerful people in the world right now and and sometimes you've got to wonder how it is that they got where they are. You have leaders in China allowing all sorts of awful, awful things to happen to the people that they lead. You have leaders in America from both sides of politics doing and saying things that seem incomprehensible. Even in our own country, as an election closes in on us, where we've got the incredible privilege of choosing for ourselves our own leaders, even we can start to feel like there's a crisis of leadership. We can feel disillusioned. It seems hard to find leaders who will stand up for what's good and what's right and not just what's popular and convenient. Finding leaders who will compassionately care for the poor and the refugees while at the same time who will care about the truth and not just what feels right, sadly, this seems more and more unrealistic. Finding leaders who will stand up to those who want to shout down freedom of speech and freedom of religion and freedom of common sense, it seems unlikely that we're going to see these leaders shining anytime soon. And the truth is, leadership is not just disappointing on a political level. Think about your work. How many of us are in jobs where we're let down by those who lead us, where we long for strong, humble, servant-hearted, generous bosses who care for the people that they lead? And even closer to home, sadly, the problems with leadership seem to follow us even there because even leadership in our own families is often not what it should be. We promise in our marriage vows, with all that I am and all that I have, I honour you. But then do we lead the way in that? Is that what our kids see? Or do they see their parents, their role models, their leaders just tolerating each other, kindness and affection drying up, effort diminishing, hearts wandering. The sad reality is that it's very easy to drop the ball on leading our families. Sometimes we're not even present, we're lost in our work or lost in our hobbies or we're just withdrawn. And even when we are present and even when we can see what needs to be done, still these days it seems... Often, we're unwilling to lead. Let me give you a couple of examples. According to some people, the use of technology is actually addictive in nature for kids and it's going to reap all sorts of damage in the future. Now, this isn't closed-minded people saying this. It's informed people. And I think many of us are starting to agree with them. But sometimes, even when we agree with things like that, still often... 
we don't take the lead. We can't bring ourselves to make the decision. We just don't get around to gently but firmly setting the path forward, sticking by our decisions, handling the flack that we cop. Sometimes we just don't lead. Sometimes in reality, we just ride the waves of whatever our children want. Well, let me give you another example. A few weeks back, I heard from some parents that have a 14-year-old son that they've never really talked with him before about sex. If a parent won't help steer their child in a culture obsessed with sex, who's going to lead? They weren't from this church, but I'm sure they're not alone in this. It's hard. It's really hard to stand up and lead like we should. From presidents all the way down to parents, strong, humble, servant-hearted leadership. It's what our world desperately needs. But the sad truth is, it's lacking. Now, this isn't a new problem, of course. It has new expressions today, but a void in leadership has been a problem in every age since Adam failed to lead like he should. Today, as Bob said before, we're starting a new series that I'm hoping will allow us over the next nine weeks to think more deeply about the kind of leadership that this world needs. We're starting a series in the, in the book of 1 Samuel. And the world of 1 Samuel, in about 1000 BC, 3000 years ago, it was a world that's facing a crisis in leadership. And the people of God... They were supposed to step into that leadership void and lead the world back to God. But instead, as we've just seen in in chapter 2, they were themselves in chaos. They were facing their own crisis in leadership. Over the next nine weeks, weeks, we're going to see their failed attempts to answer their leadership crisis. But more importantly, we're going to see God's perfect plan begin to unfold. His plan for the leader that this world, that his people need. And as we work through their failures, it's going to help us re-examine our own hearts and address our own failures. And as we see God's perfect plan unfold, we'll see his heart. And hopefully it will help us grow in love and appreciation for Jesus, the leader that we desperately need and the leader that we're called to be like. But we're getting far, far ahead of ourselves in the story of 1 Samuel and in the story of the whole Bible. And actually, as Bob also pointed out, we're going to start today in a bit of a crazy way, this series in a bit of a crazy way. We're going to set the scene for 1 Samuel by looking at the book of Judges in just one bite, one talk. The book of Judges, it it covers that period of Israel's history, early in their history, from when they'd come out of slavery in Egypt, after they'd entered the Promised Land. It covers the next couple of hundred years after that, before the book of 1 Samuel. Now remember that Israel was given the, the dreadful and serious job of judging the evils of idolatry in the Promised Land. God had given the Canaanites, the people of the Promised Land, over 400 years to repent. But in that time, things had just gone from bad to worse. One thing that that they did that really captures the sad condition of their hearts 
is that these were a people who would sacrifice their own children to their gods. It's dreadful. It's awful to think about. It's shocking. Could you imagine it? How a nation treats its children, it's like a mirror into the soul, into the heart of a nation, whether those children are born or unborn. And the nations in this land in Canaan, they passed on from generation to generation in an unbreakable chain, this evil, terrible, godless way of living. Now we find it hard to accept, and it is hard to accept, it's hard to understand, but God at this one unique point in history, he chose to judge the people, to break that chain of evil by sending his own people in to judge them to start something new for the sake of the whole world. Now we wonder, rightly wonder, and wrestle with how this fits with a God of love and compassion. But it does. God sees the horror of sin, even though we don't. God stands absolutely against the horror of sin, even though we won't stand against it. God rightly judges sin. Unlike us, he'll never say that, Evil doesn't really matter. He'll never let it slip by unaddressed. God will judge evil in his time, but still, out of compassion and love, he gives us time to repent and he offers us a way out. But should we refuse to take it, we will face death and judgment. What's unique here? is that these nations face God's judgment in history. It's unique because God uses his own people at this one point to bring about that judgment. Now you'd think the impact of seeing God's anger poured out against evil would have left a lesson behind for his people that they would never forget. A lesson that would be they would be extremely careful to make sure that they passed on down through the generations. But the book of Judges shows us that that's not at all what happens. Look at the summary of of what happens again in in chapter 2. In verse 7, the people serve the Lord while ever Joshua and the elders live. But then in verse 10, they forget God. And so in verse 11 and 12, they give up on God and, and follow the gods of the people around them. And so in verse 14, God is rightly angry with them and gives them over to the consequences of their actions. He stops protecting them. He hands them over to the nations around them. But then in verse 16, when the people cry out to them, out to God, God has mercy on them and he raises up a judge, a leader to save them. But in verse 17 to 19, once they're safe again, they turn away from God yet again. And this goes on and on, round and round, in a cycle over hundreds of years. And the rest of the book of Judges, from this point on, is that cycle. 3 verse 7, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. 3 verse 12, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. 4 verse 1, again, the Israelites did did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It goes on And on, right down to chapter 13, verse 1, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
these people. They find the way of life of the people around them attractive. They find their gods attractive. They're drawn to them. It's easy to read the book of Judges and get frustrated with these people. They seem so stupid. But I think we should be careful reading this book and looking down on them. Because we might not find the idea of of worshipping Baal all that attractive. But aren't the gods of our own time attractive to us? Do you know that the, the worship of gods like Baal back then was usually tied to things like sexual temptation and greed? And isn't it true that in our hearts we can easily flirt with the gods of today that are like that too? Aren't we attracted to the god of greed or the god of sexual indulgence? The gods of comfort and ease, the god of self, pride, self-righteousness. And don't we live in fear of the gods of tolerance, acceptance and popularity? In December last year, a rising Christian singer, popular amongst non-Christians as well in America, she was asked point blank on a radio program, Does she think homosexuality is a sin? The question was intended to trap her. And it's very hard in that moment to explain what we think. That we think we're all sinners. That we think none of us are actually straight in our sexuality. We're all broken. We're all deviant in how we express ourselves. That we think whether we're homosexual or heterosexual, we're all sinners in need of God's mercy and forgiveness. Now, it's hard to explain that in the moment. Extremely hard in that time of testing. And in the end, she said, I don't know. I don't know if it's a sin. Which sounds like humility. But when God has made things plainly known, it's not actually humility at all. It's feeling the attraction of the gods of our age. Someone later wrote her an open letter that graciously said, Dear sister, shine for Jesus, not culture. The truth is that we're prone in our hearts to flirt with the gods of our day, all of us. And the book of Judges, it shouldn't cause us to look down at the people back then. It should cause us to look in the mirror. What we see in the book of Judges is the human heart collectively on display over centuries and it's not pretty we're all extremely prone to being led not by god but by our impulses by our desires and we're prone to justify our actions all the way to hell in our hearts we're not that different to those from three thousand years ago judges like barb said before it's not a nice book to read It's very frustrating. Over and over again, the people forget God and turn to other gods. God hands them over to other nations who oppress them. They cry out to God to help them. God raises up a judge, a saviour. Through the judge, God gives them peace. But then the people forget God and turn to other gods again. It's a cycle that happens over and over again. But it's not just a cycle. 
It's all also a downward spiral. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. Each time the people give up on God, they become even more corrupt than before. And you see this as you read the book. Ehud, one of the early judges, he starts out okay, but even the judges get worse and worse. They get more and more reluctant to lead, more and more self-centered and rash and godless till you get all the way down to the last judge in the book, pretty boy Samson, who is the most reluctant, most self-centered, most rash and most godless of the lot. Now today, rather than look at several of the cycles, I just want to look at this last, this last cycle with Samson. And we still can't look at it in detail. We're just going to have a super quick overview of it. We see the start of, of the downward turn of the spiral in chapter 13, verse 1. We read, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then we see the next part of the cycle. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. But at this turn of, of the spiral, we're so close to rock bottom that unlike every other time before, the people don't even cry out to God to save them. They've got no right to call on God. And here they don't even bother. And yet still, God doesn't abandon them. Why? For some mysterious reason, God has chosen Israel and his love is rock solid. He could walk away from them. But he won't. God raises up for them another judge, a judge, Samson. And the beginnings of Samson's life seem so promising. He's set apart by God, even from before he's born, to be a holy person, a Nazarite. And he's set apart to deliver his people from the Philistines. And if you know the story, he's given super, superhuman strength. But look at how things play out after the promising beginnings in chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Samson, the one who's set apart by God to save Israel from the Philistines, sees a Philistine woman and he wants to marry her. Now, if you remember the story, this is the very reason that Israel is in the mess in the first place. Because they allowed their hearts to be turned to other gods by marrying women who worshipped these other gods. It makes you wonder, what kind of leader is Samson? And the answer is, he's a mirror. He's the kind of leader that people deserve. Now, we don't have time to look at the events of Samson's life today. But at every point, Samson doesn't actually want to attack the Philistines. He quite likes them, actually, especially their women. He only ever attacks the Philistines out of personal revenge, never for God, never for the people. And in the end, Samson tells a Philistine woman called Delilah the secret to his strength. Now, it's hard to know for sure why he does, does it. Sometimes I read it thinking he's just a jock with sort of more muscle than brain. But then at other times, it seems like maybe he wants to unburden himself of the calling that he has. Clearly, he despises his calling. He doesn't care about it. 
He doesn't want to be set apart by God for the task that he's been given. It's like he just wants to be like any other person. So in the end, Samson betrays his God and he betrays his calling for Delilah and Delilah betrays him for money and the Lord leaves him and he's taken captive by the Philistines. But despite Samson's flaws and actually through Samson's flaws, God still brings salvation to the Israelites. They gouge out Samson's eyes, the Philistines, and they bring him into their temple, bring him in to make fun of him and to praise their God, Dagon. Samson is pathetic, weak, dependent. And yet God has brought Samson to exactly the place he needs to be. And finally, for the first time in his life, Samson sees He sees clearly that it's God who's in control. And so he prays to God as he grasps the pillars of the temple of Dagon and he brings them and the whole temple crashing down. And in his death, he completes the mission that God had given him. He delivers the people from the Philistines for a time. In Samson and and in the whole book of Judges, it's like God is, is holding up a mirror for his people and he's saying, this is what you look like. Yep. It's not pretty. See, like Samson, Israel had promising beginnings. But like Samson, Israel fell in love with the nations around them and betrayed God. Like Samson, God handed them over to the consequences of what they love. And like Samson, God was not going to give up on his people. Through the mess of it all, God would still work out his plan for the good of his people. But there is a difference. Unlike the story of Samson, we don't get to see that plan worked out in the book of Judges. In the end, in the book of Judges, there's no resolution. Things are an absolute mess. In fact, the last couple of chapters of Judges are about as horrific as you can get in the Bible. A whole tribe turns away from God forever. There's terrible, cowardly sexual violence in in there. And there's civil war so that one tribe is, is nearly wiped out from Israel. And the book ends with us wondering, how is this nation even going to survive, let alone lead the world back to its God? We don't get that answer in the book of Judges. But we do get a hint. The very last words in Judges are actually repeated in part a few times in the closing chapters. Look at the last words in 21-25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. This is their great problem. Everyone's doing whatever's right in their own eyes. And here's a hint to the solution. They need a king. Not a king who'll do the same as them, who'll just keep doing what's right in his own eyes, They need a king who will lead them in doing what's right in God's eyes. They need a king after God's own heart. They need a king who will lead them to follow God as their leader. And that's the context into which 1 Samuel begins. It's the story of of a search for a king like that. It's the story of dead ends and downward spirals continuing. But it's also the story of God unfolding his plan to bring the kind of king that will humble the proud 
and exalt the brokenhearted. The book of Judges, it's got so much to say to us today. There, there are so many things that we could zone in, as, zone in on in the book of Judges as we finish our time here. We could talk about how we too are a nation of people who are committed to the philosophy that each of us should do whatever is right in our own eyes. We could talk about all the awful places that that will take us. Or we could talk about how our hearts, like theirs, are prone to wander from God, like lawn bowls. Our hearts naturally veer away from Him. Or we could talk about the sovereign control of God, that He can work even through our flaws, like He does with Samson. Even through the failures of our leaders, even if the worst government that you could imagine gets elected, God can still bring about good for his people, like he brought about through dodgy Samson. Or we could talk about the justice and the judgment of God, that if we reject him, we too will face his anger. And at the same time, from judges, we could talk about God's patient, faithful, compassionate love giving us chance after chance after chance. It's, it's like one of my kids' Bibles says, talks about God's never-ending, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. We could talk about how in the book of Judges we see that the greatest threat to Israel wasn't from outside Israel, it was from within, within their own hearts, their own sinfulness. They needed someone to save them from that. And it's exactly the same for us. We need someone to save us from that. We need a leader who'll deal with our sinfulness, a leader who'll take our hearts and seal them for God. We need a a king who'll smash the downward spiral. And we have one, of course. We have Jesus, a strong, humble, servant-hearted leader. Unlike every other leader, he never fails. Unlike every other leader... He lives and rules forever. But I want to finish today where we began. I said at the beginning that some people today say that there's a crisis of leadership. Did you notice the whole reason the cycle in Judges began each time? It was because people went after other gods, but did you notice why they did that? Have a look again at chapter 2 verse 10. After that, the whole generation had been sorry, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew, neither knew the Lord nor what He had done in Israel, for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. A new generation arose who neither knew the Lord nor what he'd done. Do you see what that means? At least part of the reason that they went after other gods was because of a failure in leadership in the previous generation. They didn't pass on the knowledge of God and what he'd done. They say that what's passionately believed in one generation is often presumed in the next And then it's rejected and despised in the third. 
Haven't we seen this in microcosm just with freedom of speech? The baby boomers fought for it. Gen X presumed on it. And where's it at these days? Now we try to stop people speaking on uni campuses because they don't hold the acceptable main life, mainline beliefs. We can't let this happen with the gospel. We can't let this happen with our message about Jesus being the king and saviour that we need. But the book of Judges shows us that a failure in leadership like this, it's not just possible, it's likely. And this is true for parents, of course, and it's a good warning that we need to lead our kids by pointing them to Jesus as best as we can. But this is true for all of us. What are we passing on to the next generation of believers? What will be the legacy of our church after none of us are sitting here? Are we already those here who are just presuming on this? Or are we those who are passionate about Jesus? Are we those who are passing on that passion? I was in in Sydney at Moore College this week helping to recruit people to the Trinity Network here in Adelaide. And I was told that the college has gone from 300 students a few years ago down to 200 students now. From 300 to 200 in the space of a few years. And apparently it's the same at other colleges as well. Why? I don't know, but I really hope and pray that it's not because we're losing our passion. I really hope and pray that we're not just presuming on the gospel, presuming that others will pass it on. Let's make sure we pass it on. Let's make sure that we see the wonder of Jesus, our leader, ourselves, how magnificent he is, how glorious he is, how worth following he is. And let's leave a generation behind us who are even more passionate about him than we are. Let me pray for us. Father, the book of Judges is disturbing in so many ways because of what we see in there. But Lord, what's most disturbing is that it's a reflection of our own hearts without you. Lord, without your provision of the leader that we need, Jesus, our hearts are prone to wander. They're prone to leave you, Lord. Lord, don't let that be. Seal our hearts for you by your Holy Spirit. Lord, make us a church of people passionate for you. And Lord, please enable us to pass this passion on to the next generation, to the next people who will pass it on to the generation after them. Lord, we pray this so that Jesus' name would be glorified and lifted up. Amen.